All that glitters is not gold. When you think of the crown jewels, does the star Africa diamond come to mind? Or all the heads that have rolled who have held it? After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. Before we, before we go to Texas, so last but most important, twenty-first cocktail in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Not all in one day, <laughs> and we're still standing. Well, I hope you you are still kind of. Enjoying this process, and I'm yeah. not at the end of a. Uh, we hate, we hated it. It's <laughs> okay. been dreadful. It's been awful. We're never doing this again, Tom. No, it's ghastly. God, I mean, if I have to look home. at you for Should another moment, we're sharing a room as well. It's oh. kind of sweet. It's a bit like being back at boarding school together. You're so yeah. translucent. It's actually quite alarming, though, as well. I forgot how alarming schools. it was. Mm. How, what we had well, to tolerate at boarding school. Yeah, it's just just the sort of toings and froings and comings and goings of like sharing a room with. I went to a boys' boarding school. Did you? I did indeed. You went to a boys' boarding school? Yes. I was a. I was an experiment. I was the first lot of a... It was in New Zealand. Okay, wait a, a second. <laughs> we, have, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> I That's have good. some That's fantastic good. stories. Yeah. I am loving this already. I can't believe it. We have, we have a great guest on today. I'm Nigel Barker. This is Shaken and Stirred. I've got my co-host, Tom Astor. And our guest today, who was giving you just a little glimpse just then of the fact that she was the only girl at a boys' boarding school. Guys, do I have a story for you? Um, (laughs) But our guest today is helping to make the world a better place by working with women's collectives and local cottage industries in India, Sri Lanka, Lebanon, and Morocco. Her jewelry collections are crafted by artisans who faced the burdens of multi-generational poverty, famine, war, and sex trafficking. Given the right tools, a living wage, and the opportunity for an education and a career, they craft repurposed materials and precious metals alike into wearable art. The result is a timeless marriage of old world artisanship and style that has swept through the pages of Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, In Style, and rocked the red carpets of Hollywood, the movie sets of Bollywood, the concrete jungles of Madison Avenue. Please welcome Rosina Sammy to Shaken the Step. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. We need a drum roll after that. Yeah, that was good. That was an amazing intro. A lovely, lovely voiceover, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was good. Very dramatic. Well, thank you. You like that. Thank you. Although I think you should have used the maiden name. Maiden name. Can, what is your maiden name, Rosina? Rasalingam. It's got Rosina Rasalingam. Rasalingam. Mm-hmm. Why would you ever get rid of Rasalingam? Uh, yeah, good question. It's, it, it does, it rolls off the tongue nicely. Rasalingam? Right? Rasalingam. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. I think women should keep their names when they like that. I mean, why would a man ever want to take the woman's name away? Right. I, uh, yeah, that, that, I don't know. That may have been a deal breaker when we were getting married, actually. My husband kind of, it's funny, he, he really wanted me to change my name, but now that we have two daughters, he's like, they're never changing their name. So, you know what? There you it's go. It's been an interesting journey. It has been interesting. Tom, what are we drinking? We're drinking a, I, I think that over our podcast, we haven't done enough with gin because gin was the original base uh, alcohol in most cocktails. Because vodka got invented model. when? Vodka didn't come around until after the Second World War, so every, all cocktails were basically gin. But I mean, the, the you know. The, so we're bringing it right back here. Bring it right back, and I love this story. This is Tom Collins, and I love the story behind this because apparently, in eight, this is a, this is the subject. This is the result of a hoax in apparently in New York and Philadelphia in 1874. There was this mass hoax um, took place, where where it was basically about rumors people would go into a bar and you'd sit there and you'd say someone would say to someone have you seen tom collins you should have heard what he was saying about you the other day and and riling people and 
getting people agitated. And it was it, Tom Collins was basically a type of gin, but people didn't people didn't understand the hoax. So the, the, it, it it spread like wildfire, and everybody was doing. Everyone in the mm. know was playing this hoax on everybody. So at, in eighty seven, was, was it a code name for the drink? It was called Old Tom. There was an Old Tom's Gin, but it was. Have you seen Tom Collins? You know, he's just around the corner in the bar. You know. And you should have heard what, you know, what's, I mean, it, it was fact, it just spread and people got incredibly agitated and upset and annoyed by it. And it was, it's now, it's actually is, if you look in the history books, it was actually a, um, a genuinely successful, this is pre-social media, pre-internet. It went viral. And it went viral. The first this cocktail viral, to go viral. viral. And 1876, it was formalized by um, Jeremy um, Tom Thomas, who in his bartender's book um, in New York, New York cocktail book. Wow. Well, so there cheers. we go. And I it's love gin it. and oh, it's delicious. It's another piece cheers. of stuff. Cheers. 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 But we need to do that Sri Lankan twist. How about a, a Rohan Kumar or something? I don't know. I know. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You She's know. renaming it again. I love dropped this. Dropped a bit of cinnamon or something into it. Mm. Cinnamon. Or... It's a little exotic. It's nice. Yeah. So you already alluded to the fact, because you've got so many great stories, who would have even known that you were the only girl at an all-boys... That's not exactly correct. I okay, was maybe so a group of 20 or so. So they introduced... You were the first group, though, into an all-boys boarding school. I was in the first round of experiments where they introduced girls into a boys private boys school, which was a mix of boarding and day boys. So mainly boarding, or a mix, I And when you say, say an experiment... Yes. I mean, it's quite. Everyone knows the reaction of what happens when you mix girls into a boys' boarding school. Surely, yeah, well, they should have. But those New Zealanders, you know, we're a sweet bunch, and they were like, "Oh, everyone will get along." Uh, it, it, it evolved, shall we say? It evolved. I think now there's probably like a fifty-fifty split. But I was one of those first um, experimental groups, and it was. Did it, you get your own room? No, well, I didn't board, thankfully. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, it was, yes, it was but a there separate were boarding house for girls and a separate boarding house for boys. But there were boarders. Oh, yeah, yeah, there were girls' boarders. And, yeah, it was, it so was, you, come from, you come from New Zealand? Yes. And this was a boarding school out there. Where in New Zealand were you? In Auckland. It was based on, it's called King's College. I don't know if they'll appreciate that shout out. but It's, it's very a, proper. It's a, yes, it was based in an English prep school. So I also went to a prep school in, in England, um, and it was called Skatecliff. And it was an all-boys boarding school. And um, our science teacher, Mr. Rowbottom, who was a peculiar gentleman, to say the least, <laughs> uh, he used to sort of bring out the Bunsen burner tubes and give us the odd whipping once in a while. Mm. But his daughter Fun. attended the school um, I guess because it was his daughter and he wanted her to go to the school. And her name, and by the way, she's the only girl at an all-boys school, and she was actually very pretty, his daughter. Her name was Uranus. No. He named her after the planet Uranus. Wow. So her name was Uranus Robottom. Imagine being the only girl at a boys' school and your name is Uranus yeah. Robottom. If she survived. So I can imagine, unlike you, who should have kept your name <laughs> when you got married, Uranus Robottom, I'm for sure, changed her name even before she got married. Goodness. Well, I certainly, I don't think I was considered at all pretty or uh, had any of those things going for me at when I went to uh, to, to into high school there. But, um, you know, I survived. Well, everything's changed because you're definitely pretty oh, now. This you, is obviously a podcast, you. but we do record it. And if you get to see little <laughs> glimpses of Rosina, she's absolutely stunning yeah, and beautiful. And, uh, look at you that frowning. That was fishing, right? No, that was there. very much no. fishing. <laughs> I, can, I can take this one step further and say that I happen to be in a room with two very good-looking Sri Lankans. Is that a caveat? I don't, it's just Did a you have to add that? You? Well, they're good-looking for Sri Lankans, you know. Oh. 
This is the long and well, short of it right here. <laughs> this is about, it's about all you get. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. so just enjoy it while it hey, lasts. By the way, I'm in a room with only two people, but yeah, there we go. <laughs> Full of compliments. Yeah. Tell us about these beautiful pieces of jewelry that you make. You have done some incredible work. You're wearing this beautiful jewelry right now, but you've turned saris into jewelry. And it's not obviously just a, it's not just a commercial enterprise. You give back. Sure, yeah. It's been a wonderful experience for me. And I certainly started out in just the mainstream fashion, doing fine jewellery and then costume jewellery, working with a lot of department stores and, you know, boutiques like Anthropology. But I kind of got a little um, disenchanted with the jewellery industry and, and where it was going, that sort of fast fashion element to sure. it. Because um, the mission of my jewellery was always sort of handcrafted, bringing that old world artisanship to it, to the, you know, mainstream, you know, Western audience. Um, and so to kind of get back to that and get back on that path, I, um, I, I, I decided to go back to working with sort of real artisans and in this case it was women's collectives that I found and nurtured relationships with and the collection that you're referring to is called Who's Sari Now and it does it uses um, which is gorgeous and I'm just looking at them and obviously people can't see necessarily what I'm looking at but they are saris and if you know a sari it's got all kinds of colors often has gold threads and what have you but it's wrapped up really tight into these really beautiful bracelets um, and they're just exquisite and each one is different and as you turn it it's completely different because obviously the different part of the t material the sari and no two are going to be alike you know so these are sort of just very very unique pieces and of course touch my heart because I you know grew up with a mother who wore saris, my mm -hmm. grandmother who wore saris. Sure. My mother actually came on America's Next Top Model and taught the models how to put on a sari. I remember that. I do it was remember a moment. that. Yeah, yeah it's know. incredible. And well, it's so nice because it kind of tells a story. So it's these upcycled saris. These are um, saris that are seconds, they're not used by factories, etc. Or we also in Sri Lanka, actually, I do a collection from recycled saris. And um, and it's so nice because the sari fabric is so intricate and there's the texture and, and kind of playing with that color. And we, we use those and repurpose them to bangles, necklaces, bags, all sorts of things. But these women who have made, who've donated their saris or you're getting their saris, some of them have been rescued from the red light district of, sure. of, in India. So the bangles are very special. I partner with an organization, an NGO called Apni Up, and they rescue women who have um, been, you know, basically trafficked in, uh, in brothels in Calcutta. And uh, they kind of provide a new platform, a new life for them. And so I worked with them, and these are the women that made the bangles for me. And it was nice over sort of this two-year period, we also donated 20% back to educate their children. So it was a, a nice mission. Which is an incredible mission and so important. And, you know, obviously being someone of Sri Lankan descent myself, and my both my parents were born in India, um, despite the fact my father was obviously from a colonial background, mm -hmm. but they were, he was born in Calcutta. And my mother was also born in Calcutta, but moved back to Sri Lanka later in her life. Yeah. Um, so I have a, we have a very strong family connection and members of our family in both countries. And I, you know, I can't be anything but horrified and very concerned and upset by the conditions for women in India mm -hmm. and in that part of the world in general. I mean, so I think it's obviously incredible but what you do, but what is it like for yourself working in, you know, in, in countries like Sri Lanka and India as a woman, how does it feel for you? How do you? Are you respected and what do you feel of the workplace? Well, I think times have really changed. So when I first went to and started my business, and I kind of come from a corporate law background, so it was a real complete, you know, 180, a complete change for me. Um, 
I, I found it really interesting because people, I would go into meetings and people would, would usually say, you know, is your father attending or, you know, can we speak to your husband? And um, it, it was so, so 10, 15 years ago, it was a, a different kettle of fish. Now I feel uh, I see more women involved in the business. I see wives or daughters involved. Um, and, and it's become much more female friendly. Um, but it, it's been very special working with these particular women because these are women who are literally taken as children from their villages and trafficked. And this, you know, from what I've been told and from the NGO and the information they pass on to me, there's something very cathartic about working with these colours and these saris. And, and they often do it in a circle where there's music and song. And it's this kind of, it's a rebirth of the fabric, a repurposing, and it's a new um, way of life for them. It's a new opportunity. No, I mean, that's what you're doing and, and the, 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 the sort of, the mission of basically giving someone their life back is amazing. But the concept going back to, you know, and I'm not to sort of be miserable, but obviously I think it's worth, we really need to talk about it. And the fact that men in their own, you know, kind of in their own families actually can shame their, their sisters or their daughters when they get raped or if something mm -hmm. happens to them or if they even get raped within their own family, the acid attacks that are there. Yes. The, the, the you know it's this sort of also picking out of the family from, so you say going to villages and being trafficked from is that families literally selling children through poverty or yes through, exactly it's 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 a selling of innocence I think that that people often refer to um, and you know people are desperate and people are taken advantage of um, and but but well, women specifically yeah, exactly but it, you know the surprising thing is that it actually happens everywhere so I know you know even in in New York and New Jersey and you know when the Super Bowl happens or whatever there's a lot of girls and young women who are trafficked and caught up in the sex industry through it's it's closer than than we think because of all nationalities yeah exactly sometimes you think of it as as a India problem or a third world problem etc but it's surprisingly common and why do you think it's not talked about here in the United States in the same way? Uh, I think the the voices are getting louder um, and it's becoming a, a little bit more prevalent in conversation. There's been a lot of legislation in the UN, there's a lot of discussions, but yeah, I mean... I, I mean, you don't hear about it in, in any way in the, sh in the same way. I mean, I think when I listen to the news these days, maybe because the news tends to be fashionable. Right. And so therefore, one hears on a regular basis when anyone gets acid attacked or raped or sure. a child gets you know molested and it's, you know, wherever it happens in India, you yes. hear about it. Yes. But, and in your just mentioning the Super Bowl, which you know, all we hear about is sort of Tom Brady. And right. although know. Robert Kraft just got, uh, got, he's tied up in a sort of a brothel kind of a, a crisis. Have you heard about that? So I think I imagine a lot of the women who he at the place he was frequenting were also trafficked. I think that's that's been discussed a little bit. So you know. Robert Kraft and the Patriots, right? And, I mean. and grey area. We had Wade Davis in here the other day, who, who's um, who's a sort of gay activist, I suppose. Is, is, he speaks out on. He's a feminist, as he okay. puts himself as a feminist. And he was saying his in his early career, and he was uh, in the NFL. In his early career, you know, he 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 was out there, and he he said, quote unquote, you know, I had to go and have sex with you know loads of different girls because you know. At that point, he was trying to sort of fit in, and mm. he, he wasn't hadn't sort of, um, um, you know, established his kind of homosexuality in public as he was. Right. A, so, but it, the way he spoke about it was like a completely normal, you know. So right. it's kind of grey area about who who were all these girls he was having sex. You know, again, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. 
No, but I, I think you're right. You're right in that you don't really hear about acid attacks and, and things. I'm sure there are, I, I'm not the authority on it at all, but I'm sure there are a lot of um, issues even here with immigrant families and forced arranged marriages and things like that. Um, but they're certainly, yeah, they're not top of mind for people. What was it like growing up as a Sri Lankan in um, New Zealand? I mean, obviously, you know, you're you're 100% Sri Lankan, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Um, I was half caste, and that's what we don't use that term anymore because it's not a nice term. But it is a term that I grew up with, and that's right. how we described ourselves right. as half castes, yeah. um, in, in large part because of the caste system in India as well, and in Sri Lanka to some extent was very prevalent. So it was it was vernacular that mm-hmm. was used regularly by people like my parents. Um, so you grow up feeling very different and awkward. But did you fit in as a Sri Lankan in New Zealand? Uh, I think it was it wasn't easy. I think it's sort of this journey you take where you become more comfortable with your identity. Um, there weren't a lot of Sri Lankans in New Zealand, so I felt I was always a little different. But I didn't necessarily identify as Sri Lankan as opposed to Indian or you know Chinese, etc. I just knew that I was sort of different, and I kind of made my way. Um, but having said that, after the Civil War in 83, a lot of my relatives came to New Zealand and, um, you know, I um, learned Bharatanatyam and I, I got more connected to my culture. And I think it, in terms of my jewellery, I sort of came full circle because it was so nice uh, last year to visit Sri Lanka and to work with women in Sri Lanka because the the reason why I'm so interested in jewellery is really because of the traditions of our culture, seeing my mom get right. dressed the up in her jewellery. Exactly. And there's you know, jewellery is so personal. It's such a great way to express yourself. And so to be able to, to tie it back to Sri Lanka w- was nice. Um, but to your question about feeling Sri Lankan, um, I kind of like the fact that Sri Lanka is a little bit of an unknown entity. Like, you know, you can sort of put a, a value on what it means to maybe be Indian. No, I have to always tell people where Sri Lanka is, pretty much. The mostly. pearl of the Indian the Ocean. Pearl. Come on. That I is mean. basically what every Sri Lankan says. <laughs> it's like it's like knocked into them as a child. Yes. It is the pearl of the Indian Ocean. Right. How exactly. many times I've heard my mother ex- say exactly that at a dinner party. The pearl of the Indian Ocean, separated by the Polk Strait, the bottom of India, by just 12 miles of water or something. I mean, there's this sort of mystique. Yes. What they don't realize is Jaffna's right at the top, right? So, I, I was actually in Jaffna. <laughs> which is like a battle, yeah. was a battleground forever. So they, oh. they, they have this sort of great kind of story, but actually the story of Sri Lanka is quite tragic and sad. Mm, it is, it is. It's gone through, and it's still going through, you know, recovery from a, a terrible civil war. Uh, but but I think we like to feel a little special because we are this that smaller nation and um, we don't have all the, you know, I, I, we're not as well known as India. Come on. So, you know, when we want to create or carve out our own sort of, you know, little niche here, we have to exoticize it a little bit more maybe. And Sri Lanka did used to be a, a, a real playground for the sort of rich, famous and celebrities in, in the sort of 40s and 50s and 60s even. But it's still terribly popular. Now. Well, it's become my, my back again. went and did a three-month sabbatical last year in, in Sri Lanka. Well, it's one of the few mm. places, because of the war, for so long people didn't want to go there and hotels were not being built. So that now that things are changing, it's again, it's a bit like a Cuba situation where people are like, we've got to go there now before right. people, you know, overdevelop it, before you, you know, you can't go, before everyone's been there. So people are sort of having a lot of fun and absolutely it's, it's back. And we, I took my own family there. It was a very special moment to take my family and my children and for them to witness 
you know, the, this culture that has been around for thousands of years where they've got a temple, of you know, the Buddha's temple there, which has his tooth, you know, the mm-hmm. temple of the yeah, tooth. I went there. You know, and it's, one of the, it's the only place where there's any actual piece of Buddha, mm-hmm. um, apparently at least. <laughs> <laughs> Who will ever know? Who knows? Who yeah, will exactly. ever know that it's his tooth? I'm not sure what I saw when I was there. I saw a lot of crowds of people, but... Apparently, yeah, the tooth That's is That's the there. good thing about being six foot four in Sri Lanka. Yes. Because the average height of the Sri Lankans are not six foot four. Right. It's about more like five foot four. So I walked in and I, there's, I have photographs of me with crowds, like thousands of people around me, but I'm literally head and shoulders above them all. And it's quite funny. That I'm like a part of the Sri Lankan basketball team. Now, did you feel you got a little bit of a special treatment because you kind of, apart from obviously being Nigel Barker, but because, you know, you maybe looked a little, you know, Half caste, oh, as no, you I, said. Or? I grew up not being accepted by anyone. The Sri Lankan community rejected my family. The Indian community obviously didn't really have much to do with us. The English community didn't reject us, but I was. So we were always the friends. F- sorry, sorry, we've been friends since we were thirteen. Since we were thirteen, mm-hmm. but I think you and I connected because you yeah. were odd too. You were the redhead. And redheads are always weird. I mean, let's, let's face it. The redheads are really the biggest minority out there, Tom. Well, no, I think us and I think the, there are as many redheads as there are Jews. I think we're about eighteen million or something, nineteen million. So not Apparently many worldwide. Yeah. So not many. No. How many Sri Lankans are there? I think there's twenty-four million. So we've got oh, really? more Sri Lankans okay. than redheads. So sorry, you are the minority. All right. Is that why we, that's why we became friends. But anyway, I, I, grew, I mean, my own childhood grew up, and I felt very sort of out of place. And I kind of got used to it in a way, but there was definitely a um, identity crisis kind of element when you don't fit in in any one area. I remember going to parties where we would be, here's a party with all the Sri Lankan sort of community. Mm-hmm, yeah. And kids would come up to me and sort of literally want to poke me or look at me and because like, I was much taller I had right. much lighter skin even than the Sinhalese forget about the Tamils or any yeah. other aspect of the Sri Lankan community because Sri Lanka again has sort of various communities yes. within it so there's skin color and, and, and skin differences within the community mm-hmm. and my grandmother bless her soul she was a wonderful woman but she was racist and she was, a, you know, a Sinhalese, okay. and she would comment constantly if we went in the sun and got tanned oh, yes. that it was outrageous that we would get a suntan. Oh. What do you think you look like? You look like a Bangladeshi. Oh. You know, she was like, that's outrageous. You know, like, that's oh hilarious. my God, Nigel, you look like a Bangladeshi. Yes. You know, oh, no, was, no, no, no. But that happened, that's what was happening throughout Europe. I mean, Spain, that was the same thing. You know, you, the point was to, I mean, it, back in Louis the Fourteenth, you know, they're, they're all sticking white you know, lead makeup on, weren't sure. they, and poisoning themselves. Well, I think especially, you know, the former colonies or Commonwealth countries had a little, you know, we, we have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about wanting to be white. And I think that color plays into it and in that, the you know, I mean, my friends all knew about it growing up because every time I'd be in the sun, they'd be like, that's another washer dryer for your dowry. You know, you're getting darker. It's going to, you know, but that's, so I, I made light of it, but it's actually pretty serious the idea right. that, you know, this fair and lovely and that whole, you know, the the need to 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 be you know lighter skinned and to be considered attractive and whether it's Bollywood or anywhere it's it's very prevalent. I mean, still, obviously, still. oh, oh yes. God, absolutely, yes. absolutely, and it's and it happens within all communities. Obviously, I even hear it within the African American yeah. community for sure. But you know, I think interestingly, I mean, and it's an obvious thing, but just to say it, put it out there, you know, it stems from the concept, especially with my mother, that oh, sorry, my grandmother rather, that if you were poor, you would be outside working in the fields. Therefore, you would be dark because you got a suntan. You were a redneck, essentially. You were black. You were darkened because of the color. Mm -hmm. And that meant you were poor. So it was less about the the fact that it was more the fact that it meant you were poor. And so if you were rich, you could afford to stay inside. You didn't need to work. 
you were educated. You would be inside under the shade and you weren't working. So it was, a, it was, it comes from the root of so much racism comes from the fact that of actually, you know, of the poverty divide of like, you're rich, we're poor. Um, and and one would be better than than the it's other. It's the same throughout Europe. It, it, this all I mean, this started pre-colonial. This this was going on in Europe. In Spanish, the French. You know, the white again going back to the 17th century. The white you were in court, then the rich you were. You know, and and because you didn't have to go outside and you could stay inside, right. it's bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, for me, I think it played into more. You know, what the definition of beauty was. So, you know, growing up, obviously, there were, I think, as I had mentioned to you, you were the only Sri Lankan I'd ever seen on TV. Right. So it was um, not really, in, even Indians, I think, at that point, I didn't see many. And I, I Me, it's never, Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay Gupta, okay. On CNN. Okay. No, literally, when you are one of the few Sri Lankans on television, or and pe- quite frankly, someone from India, Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. that area you know, of, of Asia, you, you do know who everyone else is. And, right. and you're right. I mean, I, I think I probably was the only Sri Lankan at the time for a long time. And I got a very, you know, even if I look at my own social media numbers now, still to this moment, the second largest place that I'm popular in the world outside of America is India. Really? India is my second largest wow. market on Facebook and on Instagram. That's, that's and, fantastic. You're yeah. probably the only Scottish person as well on television at the time. I probably was, <laughs> even though I'm not Scottish. Are you not your father? What was your father? My father is Irish and English, but oh, I might have been the only Scottish person as well. Who knows? I think your mother was Scottish, wasn't she? No, my mm. mother is Sri Lankan and Portuguese. It's not the way. first time I've mixed the Scottish and Irish up. To he that. likes the I've Irish, the Scottish jigging. He doesn't. He gets confused. I am look, with my colouring. You would be confused, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, is it Irish or Scottish? But then, even you, Nigel. I mean, people may not have been able to place where you were from, so you have unknown mm. sort of ethnicity growing up, right? I, absolutely, yeah. which was complicated as a child. And I remember coming, going to, you know, coming to America really for the first time, where people listened to my voice, heard my English accent, and you know, looking at you, you have this New Zealand accent. Mm-hmm. And if you know, obviously, this is a podcast. If you didn't know if who we were, right? Um, you would you know, potentially think, obviously, you're from New Zealand, I'm English, mm. Tom is English, which is fine, and we are. Right. That, is, the, that yeah. is actually correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was funny because I went through my life in England being questioned as to, not in a bad way, not always negative, but simply curiosity. Mm. Oh, so where are you from? Right. And I would say, oh, I'm from England, I'm London. Oh, but where's your parents from? What's your mother from? Because I was one of the very first generations of children that have mixed blood. But prior to us, there were very few of yeah. us. And now it's much more prevalent the world over. But I didn't grow up with that being the case. But there were obviously Sri Lankan community, Indian community, but there weren't many English and Sri Lankan babies right. at that you point. also both have this thing in common where you both went to boarding schools. Now we've established that. <laughs> and at boarding school, you could, you know, there were, there were a smattering of, it was mostly kind of people, English people who, you know, old people who'd been in, in, you know, with no ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we remember... Well, they didn't Do have no ethnicity. the sort of Malaysian guy or the Sri Lankan guy? Oh, yeah. Guy. Of course. I, I, yeah, there were like you, three of them. <laughs> can I ask you a question about New Zealand, though? Because I've, and in my mind, I have this kind of fixed thing in my mind that New Ze- people in New Zealand are incredibly kind of nice, kind, open, hospitable people. That in my mind, I have this this, this notion that they are. I mean, they're completely different from Australians. I can sort of tell you, know, different, completely yeah. different. And to me, they've always we like come Australians across, too. So is, is, was that the case? 
You're no, you're absolutely right. And when I look back on on things that have been incredibly like fortunate and kismet and destiny, you know, I think I was really lucky to be born and raised in New Zealand. It's this wonderful, open, relaxed culture. You know, I'm here in New York in this rat race. There's and lots it, of sheep. There are lots of sheep, but what's wrong with sheep, right? So, but it would have been <laughs> so if you've been literally born over the water. You know, again, there's nothing that we shouldn't even begin to compare Australians and New Zealand. But New Zealand is so for you growing up in New Zealand. I'm imagining um, that actually uh, you were different. But when you said earlier on, in, you said earlier on, I felt different. I want what I wanted to ask you was did, difference as in special. Did you feel special or no? Like, not special. No, not special. I don't think I felt special. Um, no, I just felt different. Right. I don't think people. I don't think there was like a wow, you know, certainly growing up, there was nothing, you know, as I got older, I think people would maybe exoticize it a little bit more and be like, oh, what? you don't look Sri Lankan or you don't look Indian. I mean, which is crazy. I mean, I'm sure you get that too, because when you think about it and you kind of unpeel those layers, it may be something a little insulting about saying that. No, no, um, there's lots insulting yeah, about saying that. But, but growing up, no, I was just, I was just not from I was just not and a actually, key, you know, it's, it's worth noting because I think that we all too often say things like that without meaning to mm-hmm. harm or, or upset. But I remember as a little boy, for sure, people saying to me, oh, but you don't look Sri Lankan. You, I'd never think you were Sri Lankan. Right. And what, which is, they, and I understand they didn't mean it because they just had known that Sri Lankan people were potentially more tanned than perhaps than me or shorter than me or their, maybe their hair was glossier than me or whatever it, would, but whatever it was that sort of defined the classic stereotypical Sri Lankan in their mind or Indian in their mind. But as a boy, when you don't fit in anywhere, and all you really want to do is sort of have some kind of identity. You know, obviously, one can be confident and I'm, a free, I'm myself and I don't care. But that, that takes a lot. It takes a yes. step. And I think I potentially got there at some point. But there were also times when I'm like, I don't, I don't know where who I am. I don't know where I fit in. And I remember my, my parents took us as a family to Sri Lanka for the first time. Um, and I was about nine years old. And I literally just was stunned because I looked around and all these little boys running around kind of looked like me. Mm-hmm. And it was the very first time in my life I'd actually looked in the street and saw sort of street urchin boys running around thinking, God, that's me. Right. That's my bone structure. Yeah. That's my body shape. That's, that's who, that's, that's what I am. Like that, that, I'm looking at the profile and I'd never seen, in, you know, the profile and the chin and the yeah, sort of the angles, the yeah. sort of high cheekbones and mm-hmm. various elements, the way the shape of the eye and little details that I was like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not the odd one out. I'm not sort of an alien. Right. You know, and it was a sort of a dawning on me. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's very interesting how our words can have a huge effect on children. Yes, they do. Those stay with you, in fact, and it's um, but it carries on to this day. I I, I mean, I've got a, there was a terrible story when we were talking about color earlier. When my dad passed away a year or so ago, and um, I was he was literally in the ICU and hospital, and people were trying to come by to to see him and so forth. And someone came by and said, "You know, I said, you know, you, you can't see me." He's Etc. Etc. They just said, "Oh, you look exactly the same, but you've lost your color." I'm like, literally, my dad is like on his deathbed, and someone's commenting on like the color of my skin, mm. you know. And so, but that's just—they didn't mean it. It's what you were going to your point that people don't necessarily mean things. Was this a Sri Lankan person yes. said that? Oh yes. So yes, this yes. is the thing, and this is very interesting: is that <laughs> most of the racism that I encountered mm-hmm. 
was actually by Sri Lankans and, and the Indian community towards me more so than it was actually the English community. And that's why I felt so sort of strange. Um, I was equally rejected by both sides, right. but but in, but in many respects, the English side, it was more curiosity, and the Sri Lankan side, who were a very proud nation, mm. they were very proud, and they didn't want their blood to be mixed. They were like, you know, oh. and you shouldn't do that, and you know, you shouldn't marry outside. And actually, my grandmother, um, who originally had a, well, married an English sailor uh, in the 1950s, um, was outcast out of her family. Um, and my mother is only half Sri Lankan, so I'm only actually a quarter Sri Lankan. Right? But when my mother entered the Miss World competition, she entered the Miss Sri Lanka competition in Sri Lanka. She went all the way to the finals, and then she was disqualified because she wasn't 100% Sri Lankan. Really? Right? So back then, you, they, they said, oh, no, if you're not 100% from the country, you can't be the Miss Sri Lanka or the Miss Colombia or the Miss mm -hmm. England. You had to be a purebred. So she didn't win. She had a title taken away from her after they were told that she was going to win because she was disqualified for being half. Wow. And so this is something that, you know, in my, my personal family is a sort of deep-rooted, constant yeah. It's inverted snobbery, isn't it? Yeah. In a way, in a, in a strange yeah. way. You'll find now that, that, if you go back to England now... No, of course it's different. And uh, You'll find now that I don't think um, a huge amount's changed, actually, even though we like to think oh, that really? people are more tolerant of things. I actually don't think too much has changed in the last 20 years. A guy, guy who works for me who's local to the area where I live, was said something the other day, you know, derogatory, it was packy. It was about, mm. you know, or some sort of joke about a packy. I just hold on. Packy being someone from Pakistan. Which is a derogatory term course, for someone. Yeah, yeah, it's probably what Niger was called, actually. Oh, as I'm sure I was all called that too, yeah. yeah. And it's a derogatory term. And I hold this guy up, it worked for me. I went, no. I said, seriously, no. Like, I don't, you don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to. And I suddenly realized that actually, you know, within, a, within the mainstream, there's, he, he was really shocked. He was really shocked that I hold him up and I said, no, I don't, hear, I don't want to hear this. I just don't have time for this kind of crap. You know, no. And I, and I hire Polish workers and things who, you know, and I don't have time for it. And he was really genuinely shocked that I was like, Hauling him up on it, going, it's totally unacceptable. No, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Because it's totally, yeah, but you have, no, but I will. And, I, and I'll do it. Because any sort, I mean, also on the other end of the coin, it's still, Perfectly all right, by the way, to make ginger jokes in England. <laughs> <laughs> so of course it is. I make them all the time. But what, what I was saying, and, and also the way things are going now in Europe, mm. uh, it, it, things aren't getting better, they're getting worse. You and know. and I, it's a really interesting point because I think we all want to think things are getting better. Um, but then, you know, to, to when you mention your, co your co-worker, et cetera, you think, well, what would he do if his son or daughter married a Sri Lankan? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. or Parky, yeah. as he said. Yeah. You know, he'd be horrified. Yeah. And so, you know, in some respects, you know, we also live in New York and it's a little bit of a bubble and where people are a little bit more open-minded and it's much more multicultural. But I think there is a, there's that systemic racism that still exists. Yeah, for sure. and it's really – and it's completely normal. I mean, it's like – it was just like a sort of normal passing comment. It's like, whoa. Right. <laughs> like, no. You know, I mean, but again, you know – Comments on any level. I think derogatory comments on any level about anything or any one no, personally are, are unacceptable. But but it was just very strange. It was just a very for, for me. It was just like boom, crikey. You know, one likes to think, as you said, that that we've come a long way. Um, but with well, Trump as our president, uh, I think that's a great reflection of how wow. 
yeah. We haven't come all that far. Well, I mean, talking about Sri Lanka again, I mean, you know, one can obviously look at Trump and say well, he's building walls and, you know, he's been accused of racism and everything else, but the, the racism is everywhere. Oh, yeah. And it's within cultures. It's within, you know, it's not just white against black or white against colored. It's, it's people of color themselves saying, you know, oh, the, the light-skinned black girl, the caramel-skinned black girl, yeah. she's more beautiful or she's got a lighter hair or her hair is straighter. And that's what you, you, know. you mentioned earlier between Sinhalese and Tamil. So right. I'm Tamil of Tamil origin. And so there's, you know, obviously it's it caused a civil war for decades. So, and that was, you know. And I come from a Sinhalese background. Right. And, and actually I've had guests um, on my other shows that I've worked with who have said to me straight up, Oh, I'm surprised you would have me on the show when you, well, I'm Tamil and you're Sinhalese. And they know that I'm Sinhalese. Oh. And I just was so kind of taken aback mm-hmm. by that. That and these are my contemporaries, by the way. Oh, yeah. And it's, well, MIA, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when I first met her and she pointed out that she was Tamil. Straight off the, off the bat, just want to announce it and put it out there. Right. As if somehow, you know, that would affect anyone's opinion of her. But, I, but it's, it's, that is, this is a part of us. And I think it really takes all of us everyone, those on either side, to sort of tr- really try and see without a filter and, and you know, see past the color and get through to who we are as people and what we're doing. Because it's this... It's but at the beginning, we're, okay, so I defy anybody, right? Or I don't, I challenge anybody, and I've never found anyone who can do this, to explain to me why my belief is we are all born equal. I challenge anyone to come up with a really good explanation as to why one person is better than another person, since we are all born in on the same planet, right? It doesn't matter. Just s- someone explain to me why somebody is better than someone else. Well, clearly, and, it's, and, and by the way, this is great. It's going on a podcast because I, so far, no one's managed to come up with anything. No one's been better than us. No one has been better than us. And you're right, Tom. And I think that's a great moment to sort of on that subject be like, okay, you know what? You're right. No one is better. And I hope people out there, you know, feel like they, they've got some solidarity. I mean, there mm-hmm. are people out there who do think, think that way. And we certainly do. And I, look, I, one of the lovely things about your jewelry, obviously, other than the fact you give back, are, are the stories behind it. And Let's talk a little bit about how important jewelry is to so many people in the world and the stories it tells. And I, I've always found it fascinating that the fact that um, there is more gold in jewelry in India than there is gold in the rest of the world, including the U.S. Federal Reserve of gold. So if you were to take all the jewelry ever been made into mm-hmm. jewelry in the country of India, there is more than the entire federal state than we have in the Federal Reserve in, in the U.S. That's just fascinating how much gold there is in the in, it's why, why do they love gold so much? Well, it's, it's, it's a it's, lack of banks. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, but it's that gold sort of, uh, it, it, you know, defines you a little bit in terms of it tells you, you know, your status, your wealth, whether you're married, whether you're single, etc. But it plays, jewelry plays very strongly into that storytelling aspect of your your personality. And um, so in India, obviously, um, it, it goes towards whether, um, you know, like you were speaking to earlier about how wealthy you are and what you do for a living. Um, but but I think what you're alluding to is what, you know, we had 
discussed briefly before, which was that jewelry is such a great way to express yourself. Um, and you see it very much in India, but all over the world. Um, you know, you always have these great stories where people have picked up something from, you know, a market in Italy or, a, you know, when they're traveling and they have these great stories behind their pieces. And those that's the sort of jewelry that's most meaningful to you. And I think um, when you wear it, you feel good because you're able to tell a story in it. You, you chose that because you liked it or you were in Vietnam and some village and someone in hand made it as opposed to going to a store where everyone's saying you have to have like a tassel earring and so you pick up the you know tassel earring and the it color of the season I think for generations and throughout history jewelry has been so much more than that it's just been a great way of expressing yourself and that's why I got into jewelry and that's why my I've kind of pivoted through as I've as I've evolved within the business going back to these creating these pieces which are much more than like a trend piece. Well, no, they have stories. As you mentioned, I mean, the sari itself. Who wore the sari? What do the colors of the sari mean? You know, uh, know, purple perhaps being a royal color, you know, and sort of certain colors meaning things. And, of course, the story of the women themselves, Mm -hmm. and there's all of that. But, you know, look at the things, sort of jewelry historically. You've got the crown jewels in England and the Mm -hmm. story of the crown jewels and who made what, why, when, how, who was killed over them, what was stolen. status. Again, again, as you were saying, it says, but going back to the lack of banks comment that I made earlier, is, 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 did, you know, is it the status thing tied up with the with the um, you have jewelry made for you because you carry your wealth as well? You know, in the, in the sort of advent you're wearing of your wealth. You're of wearing course, your yes, wealth, you do. and it's a safe way to do it because sure. it's on you. And you and, yeah. and at the same time, you could, it's it's like has a double double meaning because you know it does show your status off. Yeah. I think traditionally, a lot of families have felt that security by having the gold yeah. with them, and then you do you do wear it. And there's certainly stories of people having to, you know, in our culture, I don't know if you ever tied the thali for your wedding, and so there's a gold necklace that you wear, not a not a, a wedding ring or engagement ring, um, and that's. It's you know it's it's tied up in who you are, and then you wear. Then there's certainly stories about people having to sell jewelry when you know they're falling on hard times, right. and it's just it's part of your sort of family story. But it's always been a great investment. There's no doubt about it. Gold is one of those things where, especially when times are difficult, gold tends to hold its value. Yeah. Right. So you know historically, just even investors outside of jewelry, you know, gold's been a good place to be. Um, you know, I personally have always loved designing jewelry. And I've actually designed multiple pieces for my wife. And I've never thought of just going and buying a pair of earrings or a necklace. And, you know, I think it came from my mother who, you know, Sri Lanka is one of the most extraordinary places for gemstones, mm-hmm. especially semi-precious gemstones. And, um, you know, we have a plethora of different types. And turquoise is one of my favorites. And my Do mother, they have meanings uh, in oh, Sri Lanka? Yes. Yeah. They all I mean, have a meaning and a power. And, right. a, you know, right. this one is for this, this one's for that. Can, and we should forget, like, Princess Diana's engagement ring was a Silanese yeah. sapphire. Yeah. So, you and know. we all know immediately in our minds what that looked like, weirdly, don't yeah. we? I mean, I and don't know. Well, and Middleton wears it, it now, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I would... I had these various gemstones my mother had given me, and you know, for my, you know, for certain moments in my wife's and my relationship, I would have made various pieces of jewelry from things that I had, in, you know, I was inspired by this movie or by this thing I'd seen or something I'd seen in a book or something in, you know, in, in history that I thought was beautiful, and I've tried to recreate it. And actually, my brother does the same thing, and he's made multiple pieces for my mother. Um, and actually, I remember one time I made a rather funny piece because it was. 
uh, a star and um, he, he put a ruby on it and sapphires on it and a diamond on it and it was on a chain and he, it was a gift for my mother that he made. It was very sweet of him to do and it was expensive too and he, you know, it was a, a really lovely gift. My mother was absolutely taken aback by it. But um, the first thing, as soon as we looked at it and she was wearing it, I remember looking and saying, wow, that's my brother David. And I'm like, David, it's the, it's the star of David. <laughs> and he went, well, of course it is. My name's David, and I made it for her. And I'm like, but, but it's, it's a, a Jewish s- star. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Jewish star. And he just went, just what? Oh. He, went, he was like, what? And I'm like, well, you just thought it was your star? You, you didn't realize it was the star of David? And it was, uh, but my mother loves it. And she's actually, all her Jewish friends, and we have, which we have many, many, all love this piece of jewelry on her and always comment on like, Oh my God, we love your Star of David, and oh. you know, and she people actually think she's, she they actually think she's Jewish because yeah. of it. So it's she is one of the few Sri Lankan Jews now as a result. Wow! Uh, so that's, again, that's, it goes back yeah. to symbolism within jewelry, though. Yes, and that's a great story, though, right? Mm. It's something that mm. was given to her, and there's a great story behind it. And I think when you wear jewelry, that's what you should that should be what your goal basically not have a sort of box of cluttered like, yeah. a cluttered little box of junk that you pick up but i think it's much smarter to like invest in pieces that have some meaning that you collect over time that maybe you want to give to your children yeah. that you you know but there's an art to it so it's not easy to put it's kind of easy to put together a little black dress and a white shirt oh. and you know etc but jewelry it's so much more personal it does take much more of an investment in your time and thought to to find and curate this really nice collection that's personal the, to you. The, my daughter said to me the other day, there was, a, was one of our family had a thing called the Sanse diamond, which was in a tiara. And it was this famous diamond. And she was saying to me, when I get married, do you think we can track that down? So one of our relatives still got it. And I, went, I have no idea where it is. You know. And eventually, and she was really set on this thing and seen a picture of it. And it was kind of, you know, it's a family thing. And it oh. looked rather amazing. Anyway, she eventually tracked it down to the V&A. It's the Victorian Albert Museum in London, where at some point... I was point, just there two weeks ago. Yeah, so and, and it has been given to the, to the museum as a sort of, you know, as a piece that should... So she's not getting that back? She, well, I don't know. Do you know, do you know anyone at the VNA? Get it on loan, maybe? Get it on loan, just for the day. Yeah. Like, you imagine the insurance on that, right? <laughs> She'll uh, just be followed around by a live yeah. security guard. But no, that. I'm now totally inspired. Having sitting here, sitting here, this has never occurred to me that I could go out and actually design... No, and it's make very a easy. Piece of, piece of, no, I, I, but it's never occurred to me. What I'm saying is, it, so I was. You, you, you know to who makes links, my go pieces? To graph, go to, you know. Right. Ooh, by the way, even they will make your jewelry. So you can go to Chopard, you can go to Graf, you can go to the big, right. famous place Cartier. You can go to them, and they as well will make oh. your designs. They don't just sell what they sell. Mm-hmm. Or, surprisingly enough, and you know what it was? The, the very first time, it was actually my brother. I learned. Be going, sorry, shouldn't we be going to? Rosina Sammy Jewelry. Well, yeah, that is the where collective. We, that is where I will be going. This is should where I will be, be going. Heading, should we be all going away from Shama back on? But you yeah, know what? Come on. Well, you know what? I did. I don't have the pieces that I made there. I actually had my pieces for my wife made by a jeweler in Alabama, hmm. in Fairhope, Alabama. So I found a jeweler. I walked in. He's a, he's called Brinnies actually um, on Main Street, and he's this old timer. He's been making jewelry for forever. He sells, every, you know, both new and old. And but I. I remember asking him, oh, you know, I, I like, I've got the stone and I want to make it look like that piece over there, but I want only that element of it. And I want to have this sort of chain, but I want the chain a little bit wider. And, you know, and I want this aspect and this piece and this to look like this. And I drew a picture and he's like, yeah, we can make this. 
And it, in that the whole process was, has, was fantastic for that one piece there. But then I've since then been adding and adding and adding and I never buy now. I just look and find and especially uh, with antique pieces. You know. Yeah, I mean, not everyone is as creative as you, I imagine. So it is harder no, for to sure. kind of um, to to put together those pieces. But what's beautiful about that is that there was a lot of thought and meaning that went into what you created and you wanted your wife to wear. And I think that's what I'm kind of trying to get back to, which is that you wouldn't just go in and be like, oh, okay, you know, have sort of potentially an inexperienced salesperson just try to sell you whatever, you know, they're pushing, but to really think about, well, what's in my wife's jewelry wardrobe? What does she, you know, enjoy wearing? And how can this be a piece that's versatile for her, um, but also, you know, tells a little bit of a story because I chose this particular stone or this design. How how do, say, for instance, if I wanted to come and look at your collections, and they're being made by, uh, you know, these collectives, these women's collectives um, that you're helping uh, in various, these various countries. How would one go about uh, sourcing and uh, discovering your jewelry? Sorry, that's probably a question that Nigel's going to ask you, but I've got, I've <laughs> no, just, not I don't know, it just occurred to me that... Um, well, so my, my jewelry is... It's this is a perfect as, opportunity. He's given you a, a, a pedestal to do a sales yeah, thank pitch. Thank you very much. I'm not sure I, uh, no, I actually want to know. So. I'm not sure I would have set you up like that. We go uh, on. No, well, my, my jewelry is very straightforward to find. You can find it on my website at rosinasammy.com, and we certainly do do custom-created pieces for people. Um, but it's really what I'm discussing is more of like a, a change in people's mindsets when it comes to buying jewelry um so for my pieces like now i've just been talking about you get something and it's a there's a story behind what you're what you're buying and i think i bought something for your wife and one of the little jewelry bags you made is um from a recycled rice sack in sri lanka that they have repurposed to create these beautiful it's basic you're bags. in the best business ever you're, <laughs> you're creating jewelry out of recycled rice sacks yeah. by the way so yeah. it's forget the semi-precious jewels from sri lanka <laughs> exactly, or the I'm gold right. mines oh, of sure, india yeah. we're using yeah. rice sacks <laughs> So it's it's different, but every collection needs like a. So what about for men? Tom and I this morning were talking about this. Funny, I I was about to say, what about men? Especially as you just said a minute ago, um, you just said in your wife's jewelry collection. I slightly got a bit like, well, what about men? Well, and I said to Tom this morning, I'm like, you know, I was putting my cufflinks on. I said, Tom, how many pairs of cufflinks do you have? And he said, well, four. And I said, well, and he said, well, how many do you have? And I'm like, well, I actually, I'm more like 40 um, because I've been given pairs and I, I kind of like them and what have you. But it has to be functional because they're really tough to put on with one hand. And if I don't have my wife with me, it, it, you know, and she's not often with me when I'm on the road, I only actually use four pairs. So I'm, there's the uh, functionality I could have, I could have of. Helped. Well, you could be. I have brought my valet with me. <laughs> uh, yes. He travels everywhere with me. Yes, Jeeves and Worcester over here. Do you make men's jewelry? Um, you know, I've made them for my husband. So I have, like we did, we took some antique coins from India and I made those into cufflinks. I have those him. too. Oh. I have antique Sri Lankan coins as cufflinks. See, this is a business opportunity right here. We need to uh, create a men's cufflinks line. Um, but no, there is, I mean, I think... Look, no. at my, look at my cufflinks right now. Um, this is a bit of a conversation starter. This is kind of cheeky, by the way, because what does it look like to you? It's like a face. Is the, it a little monkey? Is it a, oh, it's a skeleton. No, it, no, no. Look closely. What is it? Can you see it? So it, when you look at it, it's made of ebony. Yes. It's cast in silver. And it's actually a devil. Oh. Right with horns, and so when people look at it, and they, quite often this happens. In fact, just the other day, Bridget Moynihan, who was a guest on Shaken and Stirred, grabbed my cufflinks, and I happened to be wearing the same pair. And she looked at them, and she said, "Oh, what are they?" And I 
cheekily said, which is what I've done many times, and you know, my wife forgives me. But I always say, oh, they're horny little devils. Mm-hmm. And, and it always gets a little smile. <laughs> See, but, but there you go. See, you have a story I behind have a story. Well, better, than, better than devil's advocate, which is what he's normally trying to well, I also have. I also have a very cool, um, it's, one, it's the only uh, heirloom that I have from my grandfather, which is a little case. And it, on the top it says studs. And it was his, which is another name for cufflinks mm-hmm. and, the, shirt you know, and your shirt studs, right? Which when you wear a dinner jacket, sure. you often use studs. And, um, you know, so that for me was very special too. And there's a story behind that. And, you know, it's, men's jewelry is often overlooked. And we don't think about it. We, we talk about women's jewelry constantly and the meaning and the story behind it. But one of the few things that men have often, own, you know, hand down. And the only thing I really have as a main you know, heirloom from my father was a watch. Right. Uh, that was given to me, and um, you know, and then cufflinks again handed down, and it's often given as a as a uh, christening gift to children, uh, to boys, a uh, cufflinks with initials on and crests on. Mm-hmm. So men's jewelry actually has a, a lot of symbolism behind it as well. And actually, the very first piece of jewelry I ever made was a piece for myself when I was 17, 18 years old, and I first travelled to uh, Arizona. Um, for a trip I was modeling actually and I was really into American culture and I had loved the the wrist clasps that Native Americans wore and I in Arizona had gone shopping for for jewels and I, I found bits of coral and bits of um, turquoise and I collected them while I was there for this two-week job and I amassed them and then I found an antique magazine that had a picture on the front of this of a class from hundreds of years ago that they had taken a photograph of. And I had a jeweler there replicate this for me. Um, and the guy who made it was a guy called Crazy Pig. And, um, and it, that was my very first piece. And it hangs in my house to this date on a, on a, on a cow skull that I bought. So it's, you know, yeah. jewelry. I mean, there's a story there behind exactly, it. But exactly. don't be afraid, I say. Go out no. there and make your own pieces. And, and, do you and feel a creative. collection coming on with Nige? I, I Nige really by Nige. He's, he is Nige by Nige. He's just what he likes to be. Go well, I mean, you started at 17. You've been a jewelry designer for decades now. I so. certainly don't feel a collaboration afraid. here. Exactly. You well, you know, apparently amongst younger men, Tie tie uh, pins. Tie pins. Yeah, that's a new. Are they thing. coming back in? They're like coming back. I hear. That. I have one with a shotgun on it. My wife won't let me wear it because she said people, you know, because we're very anti-gun. Like courage, yes. right. like yeah. encourages people. But right. it's, I actually like it though. It's one of those weird things. I mean, I don't. You know, obviously, a gun is a gun is a gun. But you know, and it's not the message that I necessarily want to put out there. But I, there is an element too of just historically yeah. the, the sort of cool factor of a cowboy. You know. But that's it shows from these discussions how jewelry is a great way to you know have some humor have some fun um start a conversation i mean that's what the cufflinks do that's what your tie pin does and i love that about jewelry it's not you know you don't really talk that's so much about a white shirt full circle to what you were saying at yeah. the beginning that, that, that exactly it's a totally kind of conversation we have just spent however, however long <laughs> having a jewelry discussion on uh, um and it is it's all the different facets of and that's what we love to do on shaken and stirred is mix it up look outside the box and realize that a lot of things in life aren't quite what they seem. And when things seem mundane, they often aren't. Rosanna Sammy, thank you very much for being on Shaking the Third. It's thank been a you. real pleasure. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I loved it. Thank you guys Great. both so much. Cheers. Chin chin. Mm-hmm.